My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. Number one is you can go and write a brief review on iTunes or you can simply go to interviewthefuture.com and make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is none other but science fiction author extraordinaire Kim Stanley Robinson, also known as Stan. Stan is the author of an absolutely monumental recent science fiction story that kind of straddles the line between utopian and dystopian. Like It's very hard to, to put in a niche. It's probably somewhere in between. Um, and, and that's dealing with the issue of climate change. So this is the topic of our conversation today. And Stan, welcome to Singularity FM. Thanks, Nicola. It's good to be with you. Fantastic. So, Stan, before we jump into the nitty-gritty of your book, I want to have a little test taste and a little flavor of who you are and where you're coming from. So, if I were to meet you in a bar somewhere or at a conference, maybe, and if I never read any of your books, never knew the first thing about you, and if I ask you, who is Kim Stanley Robinson? How would you answer that in your own words within a sentence? Um, I'm an American science fiction writer. I live in Davis, California and grew up in Southern California. I'm married to Lisa Noel and we have two grown sons. And what's the most important thing in your life? What makes you tick? Well, my family. This, I think, is pretty common. Um, and aside from that, in terms of my, what, what, what would you call it, my professional life or my artistic um, existence, um, I love literature. I focus mostly on the novel, but I very much love all forms of literature, poetry, um, theater, um, short stories. And that's been true since I was maybe seven years old. I was in second grade. I read Huckleberry Finn. And it was the first book that really knocked me for a loop. Uh, I started to dress like Huckleberry Finn. I pretended that Orange County, I have photos of myself with a straw hat and uh, a pole. And Orange County, when I was a child, was all agriculture. It was orange groves. So I could wander out in the orange groves and pretend to be Huckleberry Finn. And that's been true ever since. Um, it's a, I believe now it's a kind of a religion as we usually think of religions, but it's more uh, flexible, more individualized, more variable than most religions. But in the sense of pulling people together and living other lives, I really think that if you pay attention to literature, if you read um, literature, then you have live 10,000 lives and you have uh, had time travel and telepathy have been real for you by way of these things that you've read. And you so have that's been immortal. A, yes. Uh, well, that at least for your, for your span, you've been immortal. You can time travel. Um, and then the other thing I guess I would say very important to me has been a life in this year in Nevada, because for the most part, I am an ordinary suburban house husband 
uh, Mr. Mom. My wife is a chemist. She worked for U.S. Geological Survey and was gone a lot. And I took care of our boys as they grew up. And that was all fine. It's all very ordinary. And I wrote my books on the side, so to speak. Um, but the thing is that all that time I've been going up to the Sierra Nevada of California for as much as I could get away. And so this now comes to almost two years of my life spent up in the Sierra. And uh, more and more, I'm realizing that um, this too might not be of interest to other people, to tell you the truth. But for me personally, it's been <clears throat> the time and space where I've been um, plugged into kind of paleolithic pleasures of being a nomad walking over the landscape with only what I had on my back, sleeping on the ground, being out at night, being out in bad weather with no house to get into exposed to the elements in a very um, primeval way. And that has been uh, crucial for my writing, but also just for my my sense of myself and how my life is organized. Wow. What's the most ideal, idyllic, and sort of exemplary or, 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 or perfect uh, destination in the Sierra Nevadas and format, perhaps, that you can have? Is it like a two-day backpacking trip? Is it a week-over trip? Is it like two weeks? How does that look um, like for you? Very commonly, it's been one week because that means that the amount of food on your back and in your backpack is not overwhelming. And um, it's a good question that you ask, because for me, um, Yosemite is not the great place in the Sierra Nevada, but merely the popular place, the place that you can drive into and a tourist destination that draws 95% of the people who go to the Sierras. Well, for me, about 100 miles south of there is a Sequoia National Park and Kings Canyon National Park. And those two are contiguous and they're administered as one. And they are uh, stupendously beautiful, hard to get to. You can't drive into them at all. Uh, you have to walk. Indeed, you need that whole week. You need that. You have to hike as hard as you can every day for a week to get into the middle of Kings Canyon or the middle of Sequoia, where what you have is a roadless wilderness with no uh, permanent human uh, mark except for some trails. And there are actually vast stretches of that area that don't even have trails, but they are walkable because they're above tree line and they're not. Um, impenetrable brush, except in certain canyons. Um, so that's where I like to go. That's the the backside of the Sierra Nevada, or the inside, I call it, um, if you talk about being outside the Sierra or inside the Sierra. So these are obscure names like Dumbbell Basin or Lakes Basin or Kawia Basin. It really is a, a full-on expedition to get to these places in the first place. And when you're there, you will be the only persons there there will be more deer than people, you know, within 10 miles of you by a long shot. So it's kind of extraordinary because this is in California. It's really just, um, well, it's 100 miles from 10 million people. And it's in a state that has almost, well, 35 million people to 40 million people. And yet you will be the only person in that uh, high mountain basin. And I love that part of it. Wow. And does that do you prefer like a solitary trip or do you prefer like a small group, like two or three people? Do you prefer like a bigger group, like half a dozen to a dozen? I've done all of those, um, and, but mostly small groups. Um, 
there's been a group of friends. I've had them since uh, Cub Scouts, since high school. Um, and we gathered as adults, even though we're scattered all over now, um, to make backpacking trips. So that core group. And then I've also gone with families that are our neighbors here in the village that I live in. And the Sierras nearby, the Desolation Wilderness, is smaller, more compact, easier to get to, easier for children to hike in. So I've done it all, including solitary trips up there by myself, although that makes my wife nervous. The, the modern development of GPS devices where you can check in with people every night is a great relief to her because I used to disappear for a week and then I would show up a week later and there was no chance. There's no cell phone coverage back there. You are out of touch. Oh, wow. So um, now, however, GPS devices, you can, um, they're small, they're compact. You can text or you can just hit a button saying I'm okay um, on a daily basis. So, but that's only just in the last two or three or four years that we've begun to carry those along with us. Wow. So, so the, the, this really helps us a lot, I think, because it gives us a glimpse at who you are, because Inevitably, this must be a hundred percent related to what you do. In, I mean, the themes of many of your books. So, so uh, it's interesting. You said you fell in love with literature since you were seven. Does that sort of camping, hiking love precede that, or did it come after? It came after. It came in a um, a little bit late, I would say, because I was um, my parents got me into the Boy Scouts. And the Boy Scouts were kind of a paramilitary. I mean, I didn't experience any of the abuse or the weirdness that's now widely reported about the Boy Scouts, but it was boring and a little stupid. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I thought I didn't like the outdoors. So uh, it was only when I was a, a junior in college, I was 21 years old, a friend of mine who had gone up to the Sierras and been entranced by it. He he organized his entire life around going to the Sierras after that first experience. He took me up there with another friend. Um, uh, and from that moment on, so that was maybe, I was 21. So that was 1973. And, and from that moment, I have been devoted to getting up into the Sierras. I, the Sierras are my main mountain, main range. But when you get interested in them enough, then I've also spent a fair amount of time in the Swiss Alps. And I've visited the Himalayas and the Transantarctics. And so these are the mountain ranges that the second, the, the second tier, the other mountain ranges, I know the Alps, they're, they would take a lifetime just like the Sierra. So I know them only from a two year intense visitation. And then I trekked in Nepal in the Himalayas with my wife. And I have twice been to the Transantarctics in Antarctica as part of my, um, my visits to the Antarctic were focused on, well, what does this mountain range look like that crosses that whole continent? Um, effectively, it's an extension of the Andes, the south, uh, headed southward. You can see that on the maps. But they're completely buried by ice. So that's a very peculiar mountain range because as um, Reinhold Messner said, you're only seeing the, the head of those mountains and the rest of the, they're buried to the neck in ice. And that's peculiar and otherworldly, um, like being on some ice planet. But it's the Sierras that have, I keep putting them in my stories. I keep finding ways to write about being outdoors because it's something that I actually know myself. 
it's not book knowledge, but it's actual experience that I can write out of and means I have to have some new perceptions uh, necessarily that don't come out of other sentences, but come out of uh, lived experience. And so it's been a huge help to me as a writer, sure. By the way, we should not forget to mention, or I should not forget to mention two things here that uh, first, uh, it was Cory Doctorov who uh, brought you to my attention uh, on two separate occasions by first telling me and then repeating to me that the most beautifully written book that he's ever read, that he keeps reading every once in a while as a form of vacation, as he put it, is Pacific Edge. Um, and then, uh, so I have to, to, to thank Corey for that, but, but also then Glenn Himstra, who is uh, the futurist.com founder, uh, who actually connected us and probably without whose prompting this interview might not have happened. So thank you guys. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. uh, Stan, I'm wondering whether we should start with sort of the big picture and then zoom in on your book or whether we should start with your book and then expand from it. What do you think is the better approach? Oh, I'm willing to follow your lead on that. Either way works. Okay, let's let's start with the big picture then. I like to start big. Mm -hmm. What, in your opinion, are the biggest problems that humanity faces today? Give me, let's say, the top three to five things that we should be worried about. Um, well, I think they can all be organized under the uh, name of a mass extinction event. So the, we have the five great mass extinction events in the Earth's history. Um, most famous is the Permian, the end of the Permian, and then the, the KT boundary uh, that ended the dinosaurs. These mass extinctions events are joined by uh, three others. And now we're starting the sixth one. And this one is anthropogenic in that humans caused it. So, okay, what's that the result of? Um, a lot of it's accidental, uh, obviously. We didn't know we were going to do this or else we would have avoided it, I'm sure. Um, um, burning carbon into the atmosphere, not understanding that or paying attention to that. Um, land use of, of using all the land that's um, easy to move around on for us rather than for the wild animals. And then... Um, uh, the possibility of ocean death, that the acidification of the ocean, which is part of our carbon burn, might kill off the bottom of the food chain. Um, and so that, and then a lot of this gets described as uh, global um, global warming. Um, the rise in temperatures might release uh, more carbon and methane out of the permafrost as it melts. Uh, and then we've got sea level rise also as a derivative of all that. But all this, all these problems can be organized under the rubric of a mass extinction event that we are beginning. And that is a profound, practical and moral disaster that is still avoidable. So I feel a sense of urgency in that we can see a geological level catastrophe coming down on us that will wreck human civilization, but also cause many, many, many species to go extinct and never come back. We can see that coming. Uh, by the way, that, that the we're behaving threat? now. 
Is that the biggest danger that we're facing today? Well, it's the name for all the dangers. Yeah, it's it's the one. It's the way to name quickly all the other uh, threats, as they will all combine to this one giant thing, and that will wreck civilization and be a kind of moral disaster. In that, all these other species are they have their own intrinsic value. They're beautiful uh, creatures like us. They're our cousins. Uh, biologically, uh, you know, at the level of DNA, they're all cousins. So it would be a crime and a stupidity beyond all telling to um, to not change rapidly. So um, that's the urgency that I feel. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I, I want to make two points here, but, you know, I, I was going to bring this point a little later on, but uh, someone from Facebook made a comment when I was soliciting uh, audience questions uh, for this interview, and his name is Atu Koshkensilta. I don't know if he's Finnish or somewhere there about Scandinavian, but here's what he says. So I wanna I wanna see what 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 you want to reply to him. He says this quote: "Robinson is one of the few sci-fi authors who really get climate change, finance, and so on." Still, in all his novels, there's not a whiff of any revolution when it comes to taking non-human animals seriously as moral objects, subjects, patients. They're at best instances of their species which might have some value as components in various systems, not as individuals. It's always biodiversity in terms of species, etc. This is not necessarily a reflection of his personal ethics or ideas. Perhaps this is simply something he projects into the future as an interpolation of our present-day attitudes. Still, it's odd to read about far-future ecologically enlightened people who think of predator and prey simply as variables in non-linear equations. Well... Um... I'm thinking about that because it's a serious um, reaction to my books because this person only knows me by way of my books. And um, I think there might be some truth to that that is relative to my own life situation, which is true of most modern humans. We don't spend that much time with wild animals. Um, we don't run into them by accident very often. We don't except for a few people, uh, seek them out, which is a little bit peculiar, but is almost necessary if you're going to see them. So if he's talking about individual animal characters, well, I'm thinking of the tiger in the years of rice and salt, which is a point of view character. Um, I'm thinking of the frequent uh, um, encounters with wild creatures that are incidental that come out of my hiking life, where we see deer and bears and marmots and um, the various creatures of the forest belt of the Sierras uh, that are mostly those animals, but also the occasional odd sighting of a creature that you don't usually see. But look, the wild animals don't like us, regard us in general as, as a intensely dangerous to them. So they are elusive. They're nocturnal, whereas we're diurnal. They're out in wilderness for the most part, whereas we are mostly urban or suburban or maybe rural. Uh, and I haven't, I, I, I haven't um, done what many humans have done up until modern times, have uh, uh, intimate relationships with working mammals like horses, oxes, mules, 
That never happened to me. I grew up in the automobile age. So there's some truth to what this person said. Perhaps, perhaps what he's implying here, and I'm probably putting words into his mouth, but I, I'm, I'm taking, I'm sensing a whiff of sort of like Peter Singer, animal liberation slash veganism slash ideas. Uh, you know, people often say that veganism is the fastest growing social movement. So perhaps, you know, a little more uh, or, or why don't you or do you ever think or address like the animal liberation movement or the vegan movement as a social movement, but also as, as a movement to alleviate climate change potentially. For example, here in your latest book, you touched a little bit by mentioning here and there that he was mostly vegetarian and that in Switzerland where he lived, they served mostly vegetarian food and they were eating predominantly vegetarian a few times, but there was not much more than that, I think. Yeah. Well, I myself am an omnivore and I feel like um, we have uh, uh, always been omnivores. So I often think about the Paleolithic and feel like meat eating and meat and eating and killing and eating effectively our cousins is a is a human thing. When it's scaled out as it is now, it's it's a bad for the um, the general biosphere. And I'm not in favor of um, eating beef, for instance, um, and I try to limit my meat intake to um, a small amount, but I don't um, dismiss it from my diet. Now, in, but in my books, I'm thinking I have keep coming back to habitat corridors and letting the world be uh, a place where wild animals have their existence as well as us and that they get to live their lives and that we don't interfere with them. So this is different than animal liberation in a way. This is more uh, indeed a biosphere view of uh, all the creatures have value, all species have value. We have to avoid driving other creatures into extinction. And that means creating habitat for them and leaving them alone. So um, I, I think that in my books, uh, New York 2140, there's habitat corridors everywhere and it's gone back to a kind of half earth by way of disaster striking. Um, in 2312, all the wild animals that have been kept in zoos out in space get returned to Earth in a single kind of dreamlike image. Um, they're intensely important to Antarctica, to the Mars trilogy. In other words, which writer has more animals in their novels than I do? And I'm telling you, zero. So this person... Um, in a way, I've, I've had this critique before, but what people do is they find their source of interest. They find that I'm, I've, I've touched on it. It's in my work, but not to the point that it becomes as a focal as their interest is in that topic. And then I get, instead of having, and then I get complaints rather than um, interested comments. So... Um, I'm going to say that I have more animals in my science fiction than most novelists have animals in their fictions. And um, I live with my two cats, and I'm very attentive to the uh, otherness, the weirdness of pets and of cats in one's life. Uh, and I quite love that. And so, um, yeah, I think it's worth writing about. One thing that this um, questioner has brought up that I think is important to affirm is that these creatures are our cousins and they are worth 
including them in literature as characters and as a topic, that they're part of society, you might say, and they're part of our extended body. And I'm all in favor of that. I keep trying to find ways to do that. Yeah, and, and that's why I brought this this uh, sort of audience uh, comment right here, because I thought it was relevant. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's go back to your previous point, though, uh, and that's the extinction event uh, point. And you said that all the major problems that humanity is facing today kind of fall under the umbrella of this extinction uh, or possible extinction or ongoing extinction event. Would you include uh, things such as nuclear war uh, or the the possibility of nuclear war and nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction, as well as, for example, uh, the potential possible rise of artificial general intelligence. Because people like Elon Musk, for example, have made headlines around the world by saying that, oh, uh, AI is like summoning the demon uh, from those horror movies and that uh, it's the biggest threat that humanity has ever faced because it's uh, more dangerous than nukes. Again, that's another paraphrase from him. Um, so whereabouts do these two uh, existential threats fall within that? Are they under the same umbrella? No, not at all. Not in my opinion. Um, the nuclear threat is constant and intense um, in that there are a lot of nuclear bombs and that would be um, relatively easy to activate them and set them off. Um, uh, and they exist as dangers that we haven't fully dealt with. There was some good work done by American and Russian diplomats um, at the end of the Cold War to try to um, stand down and to deactivate um, <clears throat> a lot of the nuclear and American stockpiles that went um, that did something, but it was a, a problem that was only half solved and then it was left in limbo and it still hangs over our head, this gigantic sword of Damocles. Um, and, and one presumes that it's so um, uh, destructive of an event that um, people will take pains to avoid it. And that's why everybody exists with the nuclear bombs out there um, is this running assumption that nobody is crazy enough to set one of them off. Well, that's not um, something that you want to hang your hat on. Um, there are various kinds of um, psychopathologies around and people uh, lose their perspective and their judgment. So that's a real threat. Now, uh, general artificial intelligence is a science fiction story. And in fact, it's a very weak one. So, um, you know, everybody tells science fiction stories. Our culture is permeated by science fiction stories, by which I mean stories about the future and what might happen. And so we do that in our personal lives in that, you, well, if I go to college and I get these degrees, then I'll get this job. I might meet a partner. I'll have a good life. That's your, that's your utopian science fiction story. Or you're fearful in the middle of the night. Uh, you know, certain biochemicals are missing, you're awake, insomniac, you're thinking, God, you know, if this happens, then I'm doomed. This, that, and the other. Um, cascades of badness, that's dystopia. So it's easy for a science fiction writer to see science fiction stories because it's a habit of mind. And um, Cory Doctorow is very good on this, as he is on so many things. Artificial intelligence is a made-up noun and what you have are computers that are performing 
um, rapid calculations based on computer coding. So what matters are programming algorithms. And what is called machine learning is indeed a reiterative algorithmic process of refining algorithms. There may indeed be what we could call artificial intelligence, but what is lacking in that set of activities is agency on the part and also understanding and also consciousness. So um, if you think of intelligence as in embodying decision-making and cognition and um, understanding and wisdom and agency, well, your machines have none of those and they aren't a threat at all. You just go over and you pull the plug. So the science fiction story of the big bad computer that takes over the world, um, it's so silly. It's, it's like um, worrying about human extinction or like, oh my God, there might be a, um, an asteroid that hits that, that kills off all humanity and therefore we have to have you know, a tiny colony on the moon or on Mars. These stories are bad. They don't, they don't reflect the reality uh, on the ground of what could really happen. They are um, fantasies. They are horror stories. They're different than uh, rigorous science fiction that takes reality as something that's going to hold and, and conditions what stories we can tell. So I, I have no, um, I'm interested in artificial intelligence because of this. You could probably work up a set of algorithms that if it was just creating sentences on a screen, like an email message, could pass the Turing test. GPT-3. That's interesting. I mean, I think that's really interesting because at that point you've got some kind of bizarre puppet friend or you've got a Turkish chess player. It doesn't have consciousness, but that string of sentences on the page, um, you can't tell if it's coming from a human or if it's coming from a machine. That might happen with um, quantum computing or with some really good classical computers. I've been interested in it. I've written about it. It's still not a fundamental danger or even an issue because these will still just be machines clacking away. Why do you think so many people get sort of seduced by or tempted by, by that, as you called it, science fiction story? People like not only Elon Musk, but also Bill Gates, Steve Wozniak, even the late, do the late Dr. Stephen Hawking said that the arrival or the invention of AI may spell the end of the human race. Yeah. Well, this is a great question, and because I've had to think about that. These are brilliant people, and they um, tend to be technologically savvy. That does not make them good philosophers, okay? <laughs> that, those are different subjects. And one, one thing that happens with highly intelligent, brilliant people is that, like all of us, they are a little bit uh, on the spectrum, and there's also expert overconfidence, and there's also emeritus syndrome, where you, you get to be world famous because you're a great physicist or you're a great uh, computer entrepreneur. At that point, you can mistake that for wisdom and begin to go emeritus and begin to speak about larger issues, about social issues. You can end up saying remarkably stupid things. And I'm not saying these gentlemen are saying that about AI, but sometimes you have great scientists going on about in an embarrassing or even a horrible way about social issues. Sometimes they're great, like Einstein. Sometimes they're um, reprehensible, like Watson. So um, none of these people are to be trusted compared to um, 
a working philosopher, someone like Peter Singer, whose whose um, opinions are grounded in the history of philosophy and have a wider human uh, uh, grasp. Um, and you could say the same thing of of um, good novelists who are, and if 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 they're anything, they need to be generalists and philosophers. So, and then lastly, what I want to say about that is artificial intelligence is a science fiction metaphor for science. Science as an activity and as a set of human institutions is artificial intelligence already here. It's general artificial intelligence. Here's what I mean by that. No human could do what that AI does. Science as an aggregate activity is omnipresent. It seems sometimes omnipotent. Um, is doing things that no individual one human could do, has taken over the world, controls our all our decisions, could become fascistic and, and, and order us to do stuff that we don't really want to do, blah, blah. You see what I'm saying? If you substitute science for the um, general artificial intelligence, then you begin to understand that what Maybe what these people are saying, or the general culture is saying, is if artificial intelligence takes over, well, let's put in science. If science takes over, then it's all rationality. It's all like um, if they accidentally think that everybody would be better off if they didn't have a religion, then they'll kill all our religions. Uh, like the computer that is given the instruction of increased strawberry growth, and then suddenly the entire world is a strawberry patch these kind of supposed accidents that science might create, if it's the only force in action, then science slash AI might do anti-human things. It might become the boss and take over and become some kind of um, fascistic or totalitarian state that we have to fear. So the, these people have made a category error. They're talking about a metaphor which a metaphor has a vehicle and a tenor. This is English major stuff. The, um, the, uh, my love is an apple. Uh, so then love is the vehicle and the apple is the tenor in this metaphor. Well, people desperately worried about artificial intelligence taking over, A, it already has because they've mistaken the tenor for the vehicle. Science is already here. It's an immense force. It does need philosophy. It needs wisdom. It needs human control in order to be pointed in the right direction because science in the abstract can study and then develop almost any kind of technologies. You know, it can do gas chambers to kill humans as well as it can do, you know, vaccines to cure us from disease. So science is a kind of a massive tool like AI, and indeed it is AI. So that, that's my explanation, long, uh, long and roundabout and somewhat literary. But you see what I mean? People yeah. are making a category error here because computers are nowhere near as dangerous as they're talking about. And this is the way I try to interpret what they're saying as being more than, more than just foolishness. They're pointing to a real problem, but they haven't identified what the real problem is, which is that science needs um, um, judicious, humane, philosophical direction. You know, I, I love that point because that has been the main point of my work for the last 11 years because my whole goal has been to bring ethics into the realm of AI, into the transhumanist community and into technology in general. And I have argued uh, and continue to argue until I 
find myself losing that argument and having to embrace a better one, that all of the problems and threats that we're facing today, whether it's climate change, whether it's nuclear war, um, whether it's uh, 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 artificial general intelligence, are actually all falling under the same umbrella. And that's exactly our technological prowess far surpassing our human capacity to control that prowess, and that's to say our power far outstripping and outpacing our wisdom to apply that power in a smart, sort of a smart, productive, and non-suicidal way. Mm -hmm. Because right now it looks like we're doing exactly the opposite. And so I'm very much for wisdom and for philosophy, and especially for ethics as the most important branch of philosophy that I think is... Uh, applicable here. But let me push a little more on the first point about nuclear weapons, though. Um, because people have argued that, you see, nuclear weapons would pretty much guarantee that we would wipe out most, if not all, life on our planet if they're being released, because we have had, you know, in the past, we've had something like 50,000 nuclear warheads. Today, we have maybe about 20,000. Still, way more than sufficient to do the job. Um, and even in support of that argument, whereas you see climate change, there will still be humans who would survive and species who would survive. Uh, and furthermore, there were recently a lot of declassified nuclear weapons test uh, movies that are currently in the process of being digitalized. And unfortunately, that library has been so damaged that many of them are beyond saving. But those who have, we have been able to save, uh, we have observed that there have been some scientific errors. That's to say, the uh, the nuclear yields that they were calculating as to a great degree based on data from those movies were underestimated by something like 40 and in some cases even 50%. In other words, the yield that they, they were getting in the 50s and 60s were 50%, up to 50% bigger than what they thought they were. So when you combine these two, it would seem that nuclear weapons are a bigger threat to humanity than climate change, isn't yeah. it? Well, if they go off, yes, because that would be climate change instantaneous and severe, um, the yeah. nuclear winter. Yeah. And um, Carl Sagan was very good on this and the exactly. whole um, anti-nuclear uh, movement of the 80s, uh, the concept of the nuclear winter was very sobering. Uh, and, and I want to make it clear that when I say that, um, I mean, nuclear, a full-on nuclear war would, would not... Um, would be another mass extinction event. It would not end life on Earth. Bacteria would be fine. Bottom of the ocean, I mean, it, it would be like the Permian event. 90% sure. of all species would die, 5% would go on. So in other words, 25 million years later, you would have a fully expressed uh, ecology once again. But, you know, uh, 25 million years is a long time. And I'm, I'm just saying, I, I'm trying to be fine in the distinctions here. Because it, especially in the popular audience, in the, in the general imaginary, the idea that we could kill off all life on Earth or that one asteroid hit or even a nuclear winter would kill off all life on Earth is inaccurate. And you want to be accurate. So then I'm thinking about this event 73,000 years ago. There was a, a volcanic explosion, probably in Indonesia, that um, killed off 
all humans on Earth except for a population of perhaps as low as 2,000 individuals on the coast of South Africa. So this was a, a nuclear winter that was a volcanic winter. And um, those 2,000 people had bulbs that grew underground um, that they could eat that did was not uh, that survived and was a, a source of food. And they had clams offshore. They had a combination of a food sources that is postulated that and they had caves. Uh, and this one stretch of the shore of South Africa, this is 73,000 years ago, not you know half million, but just recently, really. Um, we were down to 2,000 individuals. If we had a nuclear war, I feel that the ingenuity of human beings uh, is such that we might indeed be reduced to some tiny remnant of what we've got now, a mass extinction event indeed. And I can imagine that, um, you know, 20 or 50 years later, some tiny scrap of humanity would crawl out of uh, caves or shelters somewhere and start over again. And it would, of course, be a trauma. It would be the end of history. It would be the beginning of really a new species. Evolution would take place, blah, blah. Uh, but again, this is just, um, this is probably being too fine when I say that, um, again, let's be accurate. An, a nuclear event, especially a general nuclear war, would be the end of humanity as we know it. It would be the end of civilization. It would be the end of 99% of all human beings. It would be the end of history. But it might not be the end of the species that might crawl out later on. And now this is, maybe this is stupid of me to insist on this, but I want to um, make sure that we don't get into the realm of apocalyptic, um, of apocalypse, of the, oh, well, that will mean the end of everything. Mostly, it won't mean the end. It will just mean disaster, catastrophe, um, and uh, uh, something to be regretted forever. Uh, and like and it would be- Like a reboot or a reset of humanity. But in a bad way, and yeah, in, sure. in essence, it, it might be better to go extinct. The, one of the things <laughs> that I've often thought about, if these remnant colonies on the moon or on Mars, which would not be enough on their own because it's Earth that will keep us alive, not these, not ourselves. We can't do it on our own, on off planet. We need to be on Earth. That's where survival would happen. But what I'm saying is that that post-traumatic population might wish they were dead, that we might be better to have just wiped ourselves out entirely, but that's not very easy to do. So maybe this is getting a little bit too fine about it. To get back to your main point, though, um, that we need guidance for technology that comes out of the humanities, that comes out of history and out of politics, out of power, that, that um, one of the solutions to the problem that you're bringing up here is what would the scientific method do if it were put to the problem of ethics and the problem of politics? And that's what I like. What I find interesting is that I think the scientific method is a stupendous tool, powerful, flexible, and self-improving, just like machine intelligence is supposed to be. Because again, AI is actually a metaphor for science. Well, what if you apply it to our current problem? What does the scientific community suggest that we ought to do? Let's do that. And then they're saying, 
cut carbon by the year 2030 entirely, get to carbon neutrality, let's invent carbon negative technologies, let's um, make habitat corridors and perhaps keep half of the earth um, uh, empty of humans. Let's reduce the human population to 3 billion by positive means, by giving women power. Let's do this, let's do that. And so I, I am a science fiction writer because I'm a fan of the, the scientific method. I'm a believer in that as the best politics that we've got, that it's philosophy by other means, that it's politics by other means, and that if we are worried at the successes of our technology, that we're, we're actually inventing things so fast that as you pointed out, we can't really, um, we are not in good control of where it's going as a civilization. Let's apply the scientific method to that problem too, and make a consultative method by which the human community figures out what to do with its new powers. And that too would be part of science and it would be part of the reiterative process. And in that philosophy becomes really important, ethics, religion, however you wanna put your worldview, um, that's part of the picture. Why do you think it's not working though? Because uh, as you said, the science is there, it's pretty clear and unequivocal. It has been so for a long time now. Actually, I was shocked to discover there was a woman somewhere in Rochester in the 1850s who first proved uh, that the concept of climate change as an experimental um, uh, proposition. She made a whole experiment proving that climate change is, is, is totally feasible and plausible. She was not allowed to present her findings in the 1860s because she was a woman. Then a couple of years later, a man was allowed to present her findings instead of her. And basically it went into oblivion. And then mm. this idea has been reappearing since the 1890s, then the 1920s, every 10, 20 years, there's a new scientist who comes up. And yet here we are almost 150 years later. And I just finished uh, an interview with Thomas Homer Dixon, who has a fantastic book on climate change called Commanding Hope. And uh, one of the comments that I got uh, after I posted links to that was, to, well, two criticisms were, uh, and I'm sure you must get that a lot. First is, climate change is not real. And second is, if it is real, it's not human caused. It's been, you know, the climate has always been cooling and warming since the beginning of the, of the earth. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we have ever done about it. So how you, how do you, address and combat or or change that narrative which seems to be so successful against the hardcore science and you can call those science fictional narratives or fictional narratives i don't know religious ideological but they still win in in the reality of those people well um you can never convince everyone because a lot of people get a big psychological kick out of being contrarian and being a skeptic and being right where all the experts are wrong so um, actually being a climate change skeptic now is a crank belief. It's residual. Some people will hold to it, but um, uh, not many. Compared to when I began writing about this 25 years ago, it's, be it's been effectively quashed. And this is the process of science in action. Um, is it? Those because it seems to me there's tens of millions just in America who don't believe in climate change. Well, but... Uh, they do when the hurricane hits them in the face. 
it's political. <laughs> it has been politicized in the United States to to the point where if you are a Republican, well, you don't even believe that the last election was legitimate. So you 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 live in a kind of fantasy space. We all live in fantasy spaces to one degree or another, but some of the fantasies are particularly um, implausible, and climate change is one of them. the The glaciers are going away. Um, the The thing is, there when people in the um, it was Louis Agassiz. So it's the 1830s. He says, look, in the past, the climate was completely different and ice covered most of the Northern Hemisphere. This was news, okay? And it took data. Everybody had to crawl around the surface of the Northern Hemisphere looking at glaciers, looking at signs of the Ice Age, agreeing with Agassiz, finding out that sea level was 300 feet lower than it is now, et cetera, et cetera. A case had to be made by geologists and it took a long time to gather the evidence back then. Um, then Arrhenius, the Swedish uh, chemist, amongst others, like you mentioned, uh, uh, put a, forth the chemistry. If there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, the, uh, the, the average global temperature is going to rise. This was simple chemistry, and it's provable in a lab. And now we have stupendous amounts of evidence showing that it's the case. We know that we were at 280 parts per million before the Industrial Revolution. We know that we're about at 405 now. We know that it fluctuates uh, summer to winter because of the uh, um, scientific instrumentation that's been put out worldwide to gather the data and process the data and put forth the theories that might explain the data and then test those theories by looking for more confirming data. In other words, the scientific method has proved climate change to the nth degree. And anybody who contests that now is simply being a crank. And, you know, tectonic plate movement. Do these people believe that the continents have moved over geological time? Most of them would say, well, of course, yeah, that's tectonic plates. We know where they are. Well, even that was contested in the 1970s. There was a small crowd going, well, that's impossible. Nobody says that anymore. The same will be true of climate change. Not only is the climate changing so rapidly that it's noticeable in an individual lifetime, but as the evidence accrues and as the old skeptics die, new skeptics don't come to replace them. Now, there's a separate issue here is the politicization of these worldviews. There's Republican and Democrat in the United States. These are like baseball teams. You're one or the other. You choose them. <laughs> they tend to be lifelong. You are loyal to them no matter the stupidity of your players. Um, I'm a Dodger fan. Sometimes the Dodgers will have players who are jerks. I overlook their jerkiness because they're <laughs> Dodgers. When they move to another team, I'm happy because a jerk has left the Dodgers. But while they're Dodgers, I, I suppress my dislike for them. Our political parties are like that. And it was a bad mistake of the Republican Party leadership to begin to deny science. Because when you're sick, you run to a scientist and everybody gets sick. So here's, this is very important to insist on. The medical world is science in action. Your doctor is a working scientist. And when you're scared for your life, when you feel a bump in your side or when you're, something goes wrong in your body and you feel sick and you're scared, you run to a scientist. So these climate skeptics, they'll go to the doctor when they're sick. So their belief system is bullshit. It's a, it's, it's a holding two things in their minds at once and trying to pretend that one of them's true when the other one shows that it's false. Because the scientific community is united 
in its awareness that climate change is real and dangerous. And so the people still in denial of that, well, it's part of a political belief. I don't like elites. I don't like people running Washington. You know, jobs went away in my part of the world. Good jobs that I, were the jobs that kept me in a middle-class existence have been outsourced to cheap places around the world. All the politicians in Washington, both the parties colluded in that. I hate them all. I'm going to go for the one that is the angriest. That's the Republicans, although Democrats are very angry too. So the fact that science has gotten caught up in this is part of the um, dysfunction of our time politically, but it doesn't say much about science. Uh, many scientists are still just crunching away going, oh, well, just you know, give me my funding. I'll do my work. I'll give you the results of my work. You can do with it what you want. It should be very helpful to you to know more. This is the scientific point of view. If you know more, you can probably put it to use for good reasons, for, for good purposes. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that you say 100%, but just at the human level, you know, half of my wife's family is from Rochester, New York, a town that used to be called Kodak City. And after Kodak went bankrupt, uh, all and they've been lifelong Republicans, all of them. All of them voted for Trump the first time. All of them voted for Trump the second time. And after being 18 years in that conversation with them, I've noticed that no matter how much science I, I shout and evidence by what seems to me like cargo ships loads I bring, it makes no difference whatsoever. Sure. So, well, that's a common story. But uh, when they get sick, when they get a, um, a cancer or when they break their arm, they run to a scientist. So they're the ones caught in a, in a contradiction that they have to live with. And that's their own inner confusion and their own sadness and their own anger. Because that much anger makes you sick and makes you sad. But here, all you really need, all you can really get in this world is a working political majority. Um, you're never going to convince everybody. Humans aren't like that. So what you need is 51% in Congress, or you need 55%, or you need 60%, or you need 67%. It depends on the particular rules, um, what a working majority means. But all you're going to get is that working majority. And then you're going to drag um, certain parts of the opposition kicking and screaming to the next stage of human development. And they're never going to like it. They're never going to agree that it's even real. They'll live in a particular fantasy and, and most of them will run to the doctor when they're sick, run to a scientist and, and then, and then complain about science when they, when they get well again. <laughs> well, we humans are strange beings. That's for sure. So yes. perhaps this is a, a good time to migrate and start focusing to, to speak a little more about your book, because I believe that actually one way that we can bridge that gap is not necessarily with science and with uh, evidence, because most of those people don't speak that language anyway, but with stories. That's, that's mm -hmm. kind of like one of the conclusions that I have gotten to. Uh, stories that people can relate to and therefore learn from because stories tell us who we are where we're coming from and where we're going and also stories tell us what is right and what is wrong what we should do and what we shouldn't do uh, and the most uh, sort of one monumental story that i've read recently was your most recent book called the ministry for the future now let me just say that i don't recall ever reading sort of a more gruesome 
more terrifying, more haunting opening chapter of a book, science fiction or otherwise, than your story. I was like, honestly, beyond depressed after reading the first chapter. That was like very heavy, <laughs> very heavy on me. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. Or maybe perhaps you should start with the book in general and then tell us why such a bang opening. But it's like, bang is an understatement. It's like, it's like shock and awe. Yeah. Well, um, it is a novel about climate change. And the notion on my part was, can I tell the story of the next 30 years and make it a kind of a best case scenario outcome? At the end of 30 years, we have gotten to a better space and you still believe it as a reader. And I think that we're in such a bad spot right now that making readers believe in a best case scenario is an accomplishment in and of itself. And then, yeah, that opening scene is um, brutal and easily the worst thing that I've ever uh, made myself write. But I was afraid, I am still afraid that something like that can happen and will happen soon. And I wanted people to know about it. And it has to do with these wet bulb temperatures. And this is not particularly new observation. Heat combined with humidity is much worse than dry heat. And what is just another recent scientific finding is that there comes a combination of heat and humidity that you can measure by various indexes that combine heat and humidity to one number. And one of them is called wet bulb temperature, where you, the idea being that you put a wet cloth around the bulb of a thermometer, you swing it around in the air, the evaporative cooling will, will drop to a wet bulb temperature. If that wet bulb temperature is it reaches a height of 35 degrees Celsius, so in other words, you're spinning it around, evaporative cooling should be working, and it's still only bringing the thermometer down to 35 C, that's fatal to human beings. You could be naked with a fan on you indoors in the shade and still die of overheating because your sweating doesn't work anymore to cool your body. Your body overheats. Hyperthermia is as at least as bad as hypothermia, maybe worse, and you cook your organs and you die within hours at, at this temperature. And that, that temperature has been hit a couple times, a few times now on the Earth's surface and is going to be a common occurrence. And you would have to be in air conditioning. If the air conditioning were to fail, if the power were to go out and power grids around the world, they're not as strong as they might be. And when they're under pressure is exactly when they go out, when need is, when demand is high, that's when you can blow out a system of power. Then millions of people are in danger of dying within um, a couple of days. Uh, and this is a worldwide condition. About two thirds of the earth's surface could in theory hit a wet bulb 35 temperature. And this includes places like Chicago, one of the highest uh, wet bulb temperatures ever recorded was in Chicago. Uh, last summer, Siberia got a stupendously high wet bulb temperature. So it's not just the tropics, but the tropics include 2 billion humans, at least, and are in particular danger of uh, high humid heat. So, um, you know, there are, you must have been um, in your um uh, Kerr as a podcaster, have interviewed eco-modernists, uh, people in favor of adaptation, are saying, look, it's too expensive to deal with climate change. We'll just adapt. It'll be a warmer world. Who cares? But 
they were not paying attention to ecology and to biology and to the wet bulb temperature problem. Is it's, that not the Bjorn Lomborg kind of rational optimist argument, sort of like, well, that's what we do. Things are going to change. We are going to change. We're still going to be fine. The history of humanity is the history of change. And look where we are. We are fine. We're better off. Yeah, sure. And, you know, there's a lot of truth in that, which is what makes it so dangerous. We actually um, have evolved in a period of ice ages and inter-ice ages that never got particularly warm. There have been jungle planet moments in Earth's history, but not while humans were around. And we evolved to cope with a certain level of uh, heat and humidity in combination that it turns out that our tolerance for that at the high end is way smaller than these eco-modernists ever paid attention to. They're still denying biological reality in favor of economic reality. In that sense, they are deeply wrong. They are, they're making a, a stupendous omission. And you know about all the cognitive errors, a confirmation bias. You don't take on information that um, undercuts your basic understanding of the world. You ignore it. You manage to keep it out of your head. So the, um, these eco-modernists are managing to dodge a salient fact. And that's one of the reasons that that first scene of my book is what it is. It's to point out to people that we can't adapt. We'll just die in vast numbers. And that will disrupt the whole civilization, even the parts that haven't been affected. Perhaps now is the time for us to bring that uh, uh, future discounting rate concept and how is it relevant to to uh, to your book and or to your thesis and to your story? First of all, what is future discounting? How does it work and why is it relevant? Well, it's part of economics. And what you do in economics is try to uh, rate uh, optimal um, usage of uh, limited resources by way of calculating them as quantities. So it is a kind of a science, to, although the axioms themselves aren't scientific in which you try to do cost-benefit analysis. Well, imagine that humanity goes on for however many years, um, say thousands of years. The future generations outnumber us hugely. And so if we were to rate the cost-benefit analysis of doing things where we uh, rated all those future generations as being equally valuable as us, equally as important, they outnumber us so hugely that we all ought to be doing everything that we can possibly do all for the future, not for us, for the future, because that's how the economics of it would work out, the numbers. So what economists do in order to give us a fair uh, uh, say in how history should be run is to create a discount rate. And it comes out of financial theory. So that um, if you are offered you know, a, um, a dollar uh, today, uh, if you were offered 90 cents now or a dollar in a year, you might take the 90 cents now because it's worth more to you in your hand immediately than a dollar a year later. So that's the discount rate. Well, <clears throat> the choice of a discount rate for valuing the um, interests of future generations is entirely an ethical choice. There is no um, scientific basis for saying we should make the discount rate 3% or we should make the discount rate 10%. It's just a question of how much do you want to value the future generations as compared to your own. Previous um, capitalist economics has assumed that future generations will have more power than us. They'll have more technology, more resources, 
they'll be able to take care of their own problems. We deal with our problems in any way we can. Future generations will deal with their problems. Fine. Now that's not true anymore. Future generations are going to be holding the bag, an empty bag, because we will have torn up so much of the biosphere, the mass extinction event, et cetera, climate change itself will damage future generations. So the discount rate, if you were, the lower the discount rate, like say 1%, the more you are treating the future generations with respect as uh, they're going to have problems, we shouldn't discount their rate too much. The higher you set it, the less you value those people. You're saying to hell with them. They'll take care of themselves. So what discount rate do we choose? Well, um, William Nordhaus won a, a, a pseudo Nobel uh, Prize in economics for saying that the discount rate should be about 4%. But he just picked that number out of a hat, ran numbers and said, this makes sense. There's no uh, scientific basis for that statement. And in fact, now there are other economists that are saying, actually, the discount rate should be zero. It's just ripping off the future to have any discount rate at all. Other people are saying, well, the law of the seven generations, which comes out of indigenous cultures, right. that you, you you treat the seven generations before and after you as being exactly your equals. So then you would have a bell-shaped curve to your discount rate, where the discount rate would be zero, and then it would get increasingly high the, the further away you go to say that to make your numbers work. It's like getting rid of infinities in mathematics. Other people have argued the reverse, that we ought to have for the seven generations a, a big discount rate. They can deal, but that beyond that, it gets higher. So in other words, in economic theory, the argument over the discount rate is an argument over basic fundamental philosophies of how do we treat the future people that are It's ethics, what I would call ethics. Yes. Some people call that ethics. There are there are um, communities in which ethics is seen as just the foam on top of deeper waves of power. In other words, a set of excuses for practices that are under have underlying axioms. Um, I like to avoid that word just to keep it at the level of um, of uh, political power. In other words, you could say, well, if everybody was ethical, then capitalism would work. Well, I would <laughs> say that that's not true. And that also this this notion that everybody's ethical, in other words, you would do stuff beyond, above and beyond what the law requires. I say, no, the law should require it. So I like to uh, take the discussion of ethics back to the level of uh, maybe fundamental axioms or ideology or worldview, um, you know, that kind of that kind of terminology. Well, it comes down to values at any rate. Uh, and that's what ethics is concerned about. And what's striking to me is that sort of the West and the indigenous people that you uh, you're mentioning, and those are people like sort of like in British Columbia and sort of like Washington State, sort of near the Pacific coast of North America, they looked at the same issue and came up with sort of diametrically opposed solution or value system to, to value that. So, so we mm -hmm. here have th that kind of future discount rate that you were just describing. They, on the other hand, as you mentioned, have this idea of valuing seven generations back and forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so every major decision that those tribes have had to make was to be considered as if it were impactful both seven generations back and seven fourths. Uh, and so for them, those were all on sort of the same plane level, the same value level, right? Which is one mm -hmm. reason why perhaps, you know, they lived in, let's say, in British Columbia for thousands of years, and they were sort of in the 
near perfect equilibrium with the with the surrounding na- environment uh, western european settlers came in and we fished out the the fish out of the lakes in 200 years you know cut out the trees took out all, all the major big mammals and stuff like that in basically 200 years uh, so so that's what's striking to me is how and and we doesn't it come in some way to our sort of like inception stories like the, the the original inception story that we have in the west perhaps could be the one that you know god created us in his own image and then he created the rest of the world as our garden uh, to serve us so they're ours for the taking to 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 do with them as we see fit whereas they in their inception stories the indigenous peoples they have a sort of a more horizontal more decentralized more sort of uh humanities on the same plane field as as all the other animate and even inanimate objects such as stones and rivers and trees and you name it right yeah so, is that not sort of the epistemology of, of that kind of, the origin of that kind of value divergence, if you will? Yes, I, I would agree with all of that. Um, and and uh, now some of this, I think, comes from um, simply the numbers involved. Uh, so it isn't entirely just a matter of um, your epistem or your ideology or your ethics. If there's a tiny number of humans and their technology is uh, uh, created out of the local materials, um, uh, only lightly rendered, so you don't have a waste stream and you only need a certain portion of the biosphere productivity to equip yourself for a comfortable life, and there's only um, a a few thousand of you or say at most a few hundred thousand of you on a landscape that is giant, you can fall prey to the um, perception that the world is so much bigger than any individual and so much bigger than humanity itself that we could do almost anything we wanted and it wouldn't damage the biosphere fundamentally. And for a long time, that was true. The the, um, human population has uh, expanded so rapidly, so um, uh, to such a large number that we are in a new space uh, in a as far as biosphere relationships. In that, when there's eight billion of us, it is a radically different problem than when there was only um, half a billion of us on this planet. And so now we're hitting that problem of sheer numbers of humans. Then also the scientific revolution. Uh, which of course is the driver of the rapid population rise. In other words, without the food, without the disease control, we wouldn't have been able to have this rapid population rise except for the scientific revolution and the technologies that we've built. So we did all that and it made people's lives more comfortable, more variable, um, richer in every way, including richer in experiences and less suffering because that's medicine is reduction of of inevitable human suffering, all that happened, and more or less as an accident, without any evil intent whatsoever, without any, you don't even have to include capitalist greed or imperialism or colonialism or the treatment of the other as if they were uh, slaves. Um, Those are all bad and they're all part of our problem, but even the good parts of human history Uh, scientific progress and technological improvements have accidentally led us into an ecological crisis. Uh, 
So you have to um, include it all. This is the reason that my books are so long. This is the reason the Ministry for the Future is such a grab bag of different elements, is that all of these good and bad strands of human history have combined to put us in this crisis. And um, getting out of it is going to be a, a, a technological, but also an emotional or a social uh, accomplishment. It's going to take all those things. This is the perfect time for us to zoom back a little bit back and, and talk about, first of all, what's your thesis, overarching thesis of your book? Well, let's see. The Ministry for the Future, the thesis is that we could still make a good Anthropocene. Starting from now, even in the ugly situation that we're in right now, and even with a lot of people in disagreement, as you pointed out, um, we could still make a good Anthropocene. And and that's that's why uh, I loved your book, and it it just totally by coincidence happened so that I read Todd Omer Dixon's book Commanding Hope, which is a nonfiction book, uh, and then I wrote uh, I read your science fiction book, The Ministry for the Future, right after his. And I think they're honestly one and the same book. Only one is the fiction version and the other is the non-fiction version of the other. And the two of them together make one whole and they kind of complete each other. That's because they're kind of both about hope. And interestingly, he opens his book with a quote from you, uh, which is which is like phenomenal. Um, so, okay, so walk us through that sort of line of, 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 of the story, the storyline here. What is the ministry of the future and how is it going to be able to kind of push us or direct us towards a better Anthropocene than the one we are heading towards right now? Sure. Um, my working theory was that we are in an all-hands-on-deck situation, by which I mean every possible solution to our problems that has been um, put forth in the last uh, decade or two all of them are worth putting on the table and trying because we're going to need all kinds of things to succeed for us to get a good Anthropocene. So then I thought to myself, it needs to be coordinated. It's a global effort, but we're in a nation state system and we're not going to, we're not going to um, overthrow or institute a brand new political economy. There's going to be nation states. There's going to be capitalism. There's going to be money. Um, for the next decade, okay, that seems to me that there's a certain amount of um, path dependency and momentum and a trajectory that we're on. Using those tools, can you still get to a good Anthropocene? And that brought me to the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Agreement, I, I, it's fashionable to complain about it because uh, it doesn't do enough, blah, blah. It's very true that the Paris Agreement could end up looking like the League of Nations, in other words, a good idea that failed. But right now, it's what we've got for international cooperation on climate change and on dealing with the biosphere uh, devastation that we're um, falling into right now. So I thought, well, the Paris Agreement, I, I read it, and I got some help from some people um, who worked on the Paris Agreement in terms of understanding it better, and that was crucial. And I thought they have the right to set up a standing committee that is always working on issues. And then I gave it the nickname, the Ministry for the Future, because um, the people at the um, Contemporary Cultural uh, Museum uh, in Barcelona, Spain, um, had me for um, 
a conference of theirs, a conference of ideas in which they were talking about a minister for the future. They said to me in an interview, there should be a ministry for the future. And I was completely jet lagged and wasted, but that notion stuck with me. And so I thought uh, under the under the powers given it by the Paris Agreement, which was signed by every nation on earth, and this is an amazing diplomatic achievement, um, that, uh, that a small, it would be like UN ministries, Essentially, it would look like they can't do much, but they are organizing um, spaces where the effort could be organized. I could tell the story from there. And then I had a place. I mean, Zurich is a place that my wife and I lived in for a few years uh, back in the 80s. Um, I love Zurich, and a lot of UN agencies are in Geneva, but some of them are in Zurich. So I had a place, I had an organization, I had an organizing principle to tell this story. How do you tell a global story of three decades? Well, the novel is not uh, immediately well equipped for that, but the novel can do almost anything. So uh, that was how I came to the form of the book that you read. And you know, the other interesting coincidence is that just the interview before Tad Omer Dixon, I interviewed the lady called Maria Farrell, and she's Irish. She's called Maria, and she has many of the character traits that you describe uh, for your main protagonist in your book. So I just couldn't help it myself, but like think of her as your protagonist, like the physical embodiment, like the living physical representation of the protagonist in your book, like in my mind, because it's like uncanny. It was like, she's like perfect for that. Uh, so that's that's hilarious. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She's written a bunch of phenomenal pieces, like uh, one that I love particularly was called The Prodigal Tech Pro. Uh, another one was Why the Internet Should Be More Than Facebook. Uh, a number of uh, sort of activist pieces like that. Uh, oh, yeah. What Another very smart one was like, What uh, feminism, feminism Can Teach Us About Our Cell Phones? Um, and, and and things like that. So, for example, the, the main point in that article was like how if you uh, are in a relationship where you love the other part, but you didn't trust them, like we do with our cell phones, that's by definition abusive relationship. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. she goes uh, to to a number of other feminist, you know, uh, you know, implications derived out of this kind of a structural framework. V very illuminating, I found that we do have with our relationship with our cell phones because all of us or most of us love them, but we don't really trust them. Uh, so, yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear about this woman, and I'll look up her work. And I must say that when I um, invented my Mary Murphy, that I originally called her Mary Robinson because there is an Irish diplomat. Um, she was president of Ireland and has done a lot of work with the UN named Mary Robinson. Well, and it was kind of a joke on my own name. And obviously, I needed to change it at some point. Uh, and then Irish friends helped me to get my way to the name Mary Murphy as being very common. So common that when I did a, a Zoom conference on this book with Irish friends, they brought a Mary Murphy into the room who had been on the Dublin City Council. So there's a real Mary Murphy. There's a Mary Robinson. There's a, What I want to say is that my mom was Irish-American. She was a McElroy. They were from Northern Ireland uh, and came to America, her parents. 
Uh, and she had those Irish qualities. And I've been interested in Ireland ever since, be partly because of the greatness of their literature, partly because of my mom. And so some of my mom is in this Mary Murphy also. Um, her steadfast qualities are a tribute to her. Uh, but I, but also there must be so many of these people and so often they've been women. Um, often they've been confined to the home or to the social reproduction. But uh, when they do get into the political realm, then they're often running things and with great um, uh, flair and efficiency. And The most successful heads of state currently dealing with the pandemic are all females. <laughs> yes, yes. And this might be uh, for good reasons, good, bi good uh, biological and social reasons. It's evident that we the more uh, women are involved with political decision-making right at the top, the better off we're gonna be. I believe this as a feminist. So uh, Mary Murphy was a combination of all these things. And I, I laughed hard when they said uh, to me in this Zoom, they, they sprung her as a surprise. Uh, Stan, we wanna introduce you to Mary Murphy. And there was, that was her real name. <laughs> and she, she had read the book. She was laughing at um, the coincidences that she found between the character and herself. So um, I think it's the right choice for the protagonist of a novel. I mean, what individual are you gonna pick? Because really no individual can do it, all right? This is not gonna be an individual accomplishment where some great leader saves our ass. That is impossible. It's gonna be a mass movement. So when you're a novelist and you focused on characters, which you have to be in, which is very crucial to the novel, is having characters that you believe in, well, who are you going to choose? Um, a middle-aged um, bureaucrat, technocrat, that is dealing with a whole lot of people trying to organize efforts. That was where I had to go. And and it had to be a woman, I think, because and it particularly sort of closed that loop for me towards the end of the book, where at the very end of the book, uh, uh, Mary uh, Mary Murphy is already retired and she's talking to her right-hand man who is now the head of the Ministry for the Future. And they're talking about trust and how he was kind of shocked that she was able to sort of, in a way, give him a blank check and let him do his thing at an arm's length without, without getting into his face and, and getting too involved, gi giving him complete freedom and therefore her full trust, whereas him now being in her position, he was finding himself struggling to, to be able to do the same. Yeah. And I was thinking, you see, that that's women can do that a lot easier than us guys. We are like much worse, much, much worse on, on doing things like that. Yes, well, it's dangerous to tip typify, but I know what you mean. And I think that there are social reasons and biological reasons why that is a tendency. Um, that, of course, you see exceptions all over the place, but I think that tendency is real, yes. And so, therefore, one of the things that will help the future is to end capitalism and to end patriarchy, that we should have a feminist and post-capitalist future. We, things will go better. Now, the other thing we have to bring here, though, however, is that the fact that that person was in charge of her sort of black chapter or black wing. Mm. And and so this is kind of like a, an important and I'm sure very controversial point, because what we're talking about here, let's be clear, is kind of like 
eco-terrorism at the global level. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you are you saying or are you asking us whether the kind of change that we need to make towards positive addressing of the climate change issue and meeting our global go goals, uh, whether the Paris Accord or anything that will come up after that hopefully would be much more ambitions, ambitious, you know, are you telling us that it cannot happen only within the system, only by peaceful means, or are you asking us? Because in your book, you have large-scale global eco-terrorism, and a lot of people would 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 say that that you're kind of I don't know. I don't even know. I don't want to put words into your mouth. But why put that? And and what? Because that's kind of like a very fine line here. And it's it's just tell us. Yeah. No, I understand what you're saying. It, the, a novel that describes effective political violence is it therefore advocating effective political violence? And of course, I worry about this. Um, I am a suburban Mr. Mom. I'm a middle-class white male American. Um, the sharp end of the stick of climate change is going to stick other people first. And they're going to suffer. They're going to be radicalized. They're going to be angry. Things are going to happen. Uh, and it's not middle-class Americans that suffer first in the climate change picture. We have the protection of our infrastructure and our money. Uh, and our army. So uh, I'm in a bad subject position to talk about this, and I would never advocate violence. Um, one of the reasons I made Mary Murphy Irish is not just my mom, but Ireland's history. She knows that uh, political violence leaves scars for the seven generations, and it often rebounds against what you really wanted in the first place. It would be so much better if all this happened um, by uh, legal and peaceful means. And then the question becomes, well, what if it doesn't? Then there are going to be people really angry and they're going to take matters into their own hands and they're going to commit violent acts. Now, there's a, there's a range here that I'm interested in making distinctions. Um, there's civil disobedience, the, which nonviolent civil disobedience is generally regarded as a, a, a public good, a, an act of citizenry, that if your government is not um, responding to your um, telling it what to do, you have the right to go on a general strike and bring that government crashing to its knees and change in order to um, submit to the will of a large enough percentage of the people. So civil disobedience, is that bad? Well, I think it's actually kind of great. Then what about sabotage? What about breaking of property? This became a big thing back in the Earth First years. So I've been thinking about this for 30 or 35 years. Um, if the forests of the American West were going to be cut down and destroyed, entire bio, biosphere uh, regions, entire watersheds destroyed and devastated, um, was it okay to tear up those roads or to pour sugar into the bulldozers or to... Um, then it gets weirder. What if you put iron spikes into the trees that then endanger the lives of the of the lumberjacks? So already, even in, in even in sabotage, you begin to get into a zone that shifts from property damage to harming other humans, and a border gets crossed right in the zone of one activity that often gets characterized as a single thing. 
Um, and so eco-terrorism is just a word. What if it was called the American Revolution? Um, in other words, what if it's resistance to a dominant bad order and you are a resistance fighter uh, and you're fighting in defense of your family or of your uh, farm or of your watershed? So then it's resistance. It isn't terrorism. It's resistance. Well, one so, person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Exactly. So, so there the, the words are, are a battle, of, a discursive battle over the meaning of actions in the world. Well, I'm perfectly happy to fight the discursive battle up and down the line. And in the Ministry for the Future, to specifically answer your question, I fear that this kind of violence will happen if we don't deal with it legally and peacefully now, it's going to happen illegally and violently later. So the, again, like the opening scene, Those scenes are meant as warnings as what could happen if we didn't get a grip on the situation right now. That Okay, so that's the perfect moment where we need to zoom out and compare where you stand to all your other friends in science fiction. Because every I've interviewed at least 20, maybe 30 science fiction writers, you know, Cory Doctorow, Charlie Strauss, Werner Vinge, David Brin, um, Greg Bear. Uh, Ramez Nam, Carl Schroeder, I mean, there's many. And every one of them I've asked, what is science fiction? What does it mean? How do you define it? And, you know, mm -hmm. Werner Vinge said, well, to me, science fiction is a way of me to make sense of the universe. Uh, you know, Cory Doctorow has his whole spiel about what science fiction is for and that it's about the present. It's like a, a petri dish experiment in a way that, you know, you take a certain feature of the current society and you allow it to bloom and grow to its full length and size. And then you you sort of understand the implications of allowing this to happen or not to happen. And it also gives blood and sinews to the future, just like George Orwell's 1984 did. You know, Charlie Strauss said something like, you know, science fiction put, puts... Uh, Uh, humans in sort of improbable or impossible situations and then you kind of see what happens with human nature in that situation or something of that to that sort. So what for you is science fiction and and how is that kind of illuminate this kind of work precisely on what we were talking about? Because Greg Bear also said here that science fiction for him is kind of like the 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 sugar coated pill. Because I asked him, are you asking us or are you telling us some kind of an ethical message that you smuggle in between the lines? And he said it's the sugar-coated pill for him. Well, um, there's a first-cut definition that I think works very well. Uh, science fiction is any story that's set in the future. So you have today, we're in the present right now, um, December 29, 2020. If you were to set a story at the end of 2021, and it got published uh, next summer, that's a science fiction story. And then if you have a, a story set in the year uh, 5 billion AD, that's a science fiction story. So anything set in the future. Now, um, if you unpack it a little, what, what I want to say is that in a science fiction story, it's set somewhere in the future. And what you can do is by reading that story, you can intuit the history that got us from here to there. So science fiction is historical literature in that it's trying to describe if we do, if we start at the present with the laws of physics that we know obtain in the present, and then we move into the future of the story, you can tell the history that happened between now and then. 
Sometimes it's written out in the text itself. Sometimes it's implied and it's part of the game that you play. What could possibly have happened between now and the time of the story that has people walking around on the surface of um, uh, Europa? And then you can say, well, they have to have had a space program. They have to have this and that. You, One of the pleasures of science fiction is reading about stories set in the future and then imagining how we got from here to there in time. So it's very much of historical literature. And my definition will explain why alternative histories are also considered to be a subgenre of science fiction. It's the same mental operation, except you start from some moment in the past and then you go off into that moment in the past's future, and it has a historical uh, relationship to that moment of the past, but it's the future of that moment in the past. So, um, uh, Man in the High Castle. Well, at a moment in the past, say 1945, things changed. The Axis powers won World War II, and now you're in 1962, and you're in San Francisco, and you have to think what happened in those 17 years to get to the, the world that you're in? Alternative history has the same logical structure as the rest of science fiction. It's just that it goes back to a moment in the past. And then I often throw this in. At this point, we're talking about histories that we can never know because we'll never get to them. The future we won't get to uh, unless it's very near future. The, the alternative history we won't get to because that particular track of history didn't happen. And so what we add to this is the time before history. So the Paleolithic story or the stories of the Stone Age, they're always in the science fiction section. Same writers do both of them, do all of them. So the reason that we do that is that's another history that we can never know. Uh, science can tell us some things, but it can't tell us like that event that I, we were talking about earlier, 73,000 years ago, there are 2,000 humans on this planet struggling to survive a, a, a volcanic nuclear winter on the coast of South Africa. If you write that story, it's a science fiction story because it's about a history that we can never know, but we can intuit. But is it merely experimental or is it descriptive or is it even proscriptive? That's the heart of it, I think, that I'm trying to get to anyway. Okay. Um, it is experimental, for sure. sure. It's, a thought, it's a thought experiment. Yeah. And then, um, well, it's not prescriptive if you're describing a, uh, a future you don't want to go into. So, But it is prescriptive in that you are always making judgments. This is a good history. This is a bad history. If we do X, we get to a good history. If we do Y, we get to a bad history. That's inherent. That I think science fiction cannot avoid a theory of history and a judgment on history by even in the most casual, even, I mean, to a certain extent, I'm talking about um, the science fiction that is set in the next 500 years. If you do space opera and well, there's a, there's a great example of how this can work. Ian Banks, his culture novels. These are great science fiction novels. They're space opera but they always seem to be illustrating a political and a moral and an ethical point. That's not always true of, of a lot of space operas, just like a shoot 'em up, like a video game. Mm -hmm. And it has, and, and there's a lot of gaming going on in science fiction where what you're doing is the equivalent of crossword puzzles or of, of uh, games. Well, that's fine. Games are great, but literature can be bigger than games. It can be uh, gamified and seriously, philosophical at the same time. And that's what I think 
Greg Bear was talking about the sugar coating, it can be tremendous fun to think about philosophical problems or ethical dilemmas. That can be fun. Uh, that can be as entertaining as as any silly thing. So uh, Ian Banks shows how space opera can work as a, a game and a philosophical inquiry at the same time. But a lot of space opera is just game. Yeah, but I think the ones that stay the, the merit of time, or at least the one that I'm drawn to, tend to be a lot more proscriptive. And I think it's probably nearly impossible to not be proscriptive at some level. I mean, when you look at it, Brave New World or 1984, the things that have stayed, you know, for 50 years and 100 years, they often have kind of like some, some kind of a message, I think. Uh, and and your oh, yeah. your yeah. latest work, not with I mean, perfect example of that. It's a monumental book, uh, twenty two hours audio version. I don't know how many pages is that in 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 paper. It's like five hundred and sixty. Really, wow! Because it was an amazing adaptation with a number of voice actors was produced beautifully. So I I cannot say enough good words about it. it was like such a pleasure. Uh, to listen to it, but it was monumental, 22 hours of work. Uh, yeah. And and there's that very clear message. So it's definitely proscriptive, in my opinion. It's not merely experimental. Well, sure. But let's say that prescription, prescription, proscriptive, um, if you say you should do something, that's prescriptive. If you say you should not do something, that's also prescriptive. So I would agree with you that a lot of science fiction is saying either you should do this or you shouldn't do this other thing. Frankenstein so too. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah. And 1984, this is classic. There's a great distinction to be made. And somebody said something so interesting about Ministry for the Future, I want to relate it. Um, so you've got utopian novels, that's like Moore's Utopia. You've got dystopia, that's 1984, where your government is out to harm you, is out to oppress you. And then you've got the anti-utopia, which is not the same as a dystopia. The anti-utopia is saying that even if you try to make things great for everybody, you will inevitably fail. The idea of utopia is bad. That's the anti-utopia, that's Brave New World. So then somebody said, ministry for the future is anti-dystopian. <laughs> and I, I like that very much. Because what that's saying is that it's resisting the idea that things are necessarily going to be bad, that where we are right now is a dangerous spot, extremely dangerous for human civilization right now, year 2020. By year uh, 2050, and I think actually my novel, I wanted to obscure the dates, um, but I, uh, somewhere in the 2050s, by there, if you get to a good space, it's resisting dystopia. It's saying, look, we could still, even in a bad spot that we're in right now, we could still make a good Anthropocene, so let's work on that. So it's not so much a utopian novel because by, they have not solved their problems, including the nuclear problem at the end of my novel, but they have resisted dystopia. So this was, um, I forget who made this observation, but I was very grateful to have it. Yeah, I think it's a perfect description because, as you remember, in the beginning I struggled to, to and I, I tried to say that it doesn't fit the utopian, dystopian, usual kind of divide. I couldn't place it because it's definitely not a utopia, but it's definitely not a dystopia either. So, right. and that's why I like it so much because it's so unique. It almost creates a niche of its own, really. Uh, it, it kind of re 
reassesses that previously assumed divide between utopias and dystopia and reasserts itself in a new niche within the old paradigm or breaks through it in a way yeah. that's very unique and, and original. And I love it for that. But speaking of women, uh, you know, we mentioned Mary Murphy, but let me ask you this, because I had this conversation with uh, Glenn Himstra about whether, you know, the vision that Barbara Marx was pushing for in the 1980s uh, and she she uh, she was going uh, for uh, uh, sort of a, a position as a VP um, uh, in the American elections and and uh, for vice president, that's to say, in in the primaries uh, uh, for the Democratic Party. And she had this idea of the peace room, which is the opposite of the war room. Um, and and of course, she was this kind of very well known futurist in the 70s and the 1980s so are you familiar with her sort of ideas and has that influenced you in any way no i don't know this person but i'm um the ideas seem to me to be speaking to a strand you know how um, the president yeah. has a war room yeah, well she yeah. had the idea that the vice president has to have a peace room and yeah. just like the president deals with the war situation, the vice president should have the peace room where they deal with the same issues that you uh, have being dealt with under the Ministry of the Future, Ministry for the Future Jurisdiction. Well, there's, um, I mean, these are two different things um, because in a Ministry for the Future and and like Wales now has a Ministry of the Future and, and it's becoming a more common idea in legal and political circles. Um, to defend the rights of the people who aren't yet among us, and also for those citizens that can't speak, like the animals. So um, a ministry for them. Now, um, to me, uh, talking about a peace room is and a war room is a kind of a... Uh, a it's an uh, artifact of its own time, and it's a kind of a verbal uh, a turn of wordage that... The problem is that the cabinet itself, if you were if you were running for a U.S. president, your cabinet is always supposed to be a peace room, and a, a you know a secretary of peace would be uh, like a secretary for climate change, uh, impinging on every other uh, secretary's work in a way that would create turf battles. And we don't even say war room anymore because um, what we say is defense that this isn't about waging war. We don't have a war department. We have a defense department. In that sense, the words words do matter, but a defense department could mean that the entirety of the U.S. military should be put to work um, decarbonizing, changing the electrical grid. That should be the defense of the nation now involves um, combating climate change. And I write about this a little bit in Ministry for the Future, that in a world where war itself has become so absurd and horrible, um, uh, technologically so effective that everybody dies in the first week, but also in a world of climate change where so much suffering, uh, completely redundant and, and uh, un, um, unhelpful in a way that it always was. But now you, you there's no possibility of winners of wars in any way, shape or form. So defense then becomes protection of humans in, in the biosphere against the destruction of the biosphere. So all these, the, the discursive battle really matters and the words really matter, but I don't think peace room, war room, I think that's an artifact of the 70s. Yeah, that's of course in the context of the Cold War, Soviet yeah. Union versus yeah. United States, East versus West, the Iron yeah. Curtain and all that. 
That's right. Um, and I think she was going for the Democratic primaries of 1982. So that's like the peak of the Cold War, really. Um, let me ask you this. There's a lot of science and there's a lot of stats in your book. So, for example, in chapter 20, you really, to me, it read like you really are giving sort of the equality, uh, egalitarian argument against Steven Pinker, if you will. Is that a true perception or is that like a fiction of my imagination? Well, because, um... you know, Steven Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature and how we've never had it better than now and all that. Yeah, that's, I think, wrong. Um, but the, th the problem is, I don't want to argue too intensely against somebody who is trying to point out the good, who's trying to be hopeful about the future, and who is trying, I think, to counterbalance a little bit too enthusiastically um, fashionable <laughs> cynicism, fashionable pessimism, and also the apocalyptic notion you see this also in the eco-modernists. Uh, if you uh, go into a doomist frame of mind and say, look, we're just doomed, we're horrible, humans are horrible, we're stupid, we're evil, nothing good can happen, then it's very possible to swing too far the other way and say, well, look, history has been nothing but improvements, we're in the greatest shape we've ever been, blah, blah. And you have to ignore the slow violence, you have to ignore imperialism, patriarchy, capitalist exploitation, you have to say, no, it's all good, it's all good. Well, that's not right, it's not all good. There is uh, a two billion people on this planet who are suffering and two billion used to be the same number as the total human population of say 1960. So it's a lot of people. So um, Pinker's not right, but he's not wrong. And this is where it's very important to bring in the novelist's point of view and get out of the polemics of the either or of right wrong uh, and also overemphasis. Pinker's wrong because he's overemphasized the good. Well, I'm a utopian science fiction writer. I'm always accused of overemphasizing the good. So for me to complain about Pinker is what we call the narcissism of small differences. <laughs> Um, we're on the same side, but he doesn't have it quite right. So I critique him more heavily than I would critique, you know, Donald Trump. That happens all too often. Um, so he's on to something, but he's um, a monomaniac on his one point because he's not a novelist, because he's not trying to keep a balance. Um, and so in that sense, I would disagree with him that there's a more nuanced way to get there. And that we, but we need everybody on board. And even if what he says is true, it's not true enough yet. So there's much work uh, left to be done. And also this beautiful system that he's describing is crashing into a mass extinction event. So how good can it be if in fact, it's on the brink of causing complete disaster? Yeah, not I that think, good. I think that's the gist of it. If we're being pushed to the, the, the brink of the sixth extinction, it cannot be that great. I mean- right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. cannot be better than it's ever been. If all the species are collapsing around, the soil is eroding, uh, ocean is acidifying, you know, the coral reefs are dying, species are going extinct, uh, and we're killing something like 75 billion animals per year and 1.2 trillion aquatic organisms, it cannot be that things have never been better than this. Well, but maybe it can. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking like a novelist. Maybe um, what Pinker's trying to emphasize is that 
Um, life was much more dangerous for the ordinary citizen getting mugged on the streets. Um, sure. Public health, uh, infant mortality was always worse. Some of these problems that you've been pointing out, which are very real, are the results of our own successes in the areas that Pinker is trying to emphasize in public health and public safety. So um, Marx said this, that capitalism is both the best thing and the worst thing ever to have happened to humanity. And this is a very hard thought to hold in your head. How could it be the best and the worst both at once? Well, this moment is in some ways the best in human history and in some ways one of the worst, at least in not yet. And that's what makes it interesting is that, well, it was much worse in, during the Black Death. It was much worse if you were a Native American once the European arrived and your whole society died of diseases that you didn't know anything about. And, and if they managed to escape the diseases, you got killed. Well, it's, it's way better than then, but um, we are still trembling on the brink of an ecological disaster, a biosphere disaster, that is the result of our own same practices that created all the successes. So this double action of good and bad in the same um, society, in the same people. And in fact, when you talk about people who complain about climate and then go to their doctors, right within the same consciousness, you have the good and the bad in, in a mix that can't easily be destranded. It, it's one of the things that the novel is good at. If I mean, admittedly, Ministry for the Future is long, and I want to say uh, publicly that uh, this is, I hope, my last long novel ever. I want to write short novels and take on uh, smaller uh, projects because the novel's good at being short also. But it's good at being long. It's good at trying to encapsulate the totality of, of human social existence. That's what the novel is best at. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree with you. And, and by the way, on your previous point, that kind of the best worst, it was the best of time, the worst of time, very Dickensian, but also mm -hmm. very kind of classic Mar Marxist dialectics, thesis, yeah. and thesis uh, antithesis, and then synthesis. So yep. that's, that's like that's classic, right. classic Marxist, well, originally Hegelian, then eventually Marxist idea. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this, though, because there's a. I just want to bring a couple of points here in our closing, uh, sort of uh, with respect to transhumanism, uh, and what many, both in the transhumanist community, but also even beyond that, perceive as humanity's quote manifest destiny. So, uh, first of all, let's talk about that idea of, of manifest destiny, and and it comes out in the work of people such as Ray Kurzweil. Um, who says that, you know, we are probably the the only intelligent species in the universe, and we for sure that we are the only known so far. And he says that there may not be God yet, but not yet, but we are to become gods. Uh, and, you know, we are to populate the universe. We are to spread beyond the stars, beyond the solar system, beyond the galaxy, you know. And then you have, uh, you know, uh, Elon Musk, who wants to die on Mars uh, and wants to start up a whole city. You've written, you know, three books at least on Mars, probably more. Uh, so what's your take? And, and that's kind of the general idea stemming from the general transhumanist community. You know, those ideas come all the way back from Tsiolkovsky, you know, who said that Earth is humanity's cradle, but one cannot stay in the cradle forever. Uh, 
Yeah. So that idea of sort of like going out there and that that's literally our manifest destiny. That's what we are to do. Wrong, 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 wrong. That's what I say to that. It's wrong. It, it, it's, it does come from Silkowski, although you might trace it back to um, ancient traditions that are more religious than scientific. But Silkowski, the earth is humanity's cradle. You're not meant to stay in your cradle forever. That's wrong. Earth is humanity's home. It will never not be our home. We cannot get to the stars. We are stuck in this solar system. And the other bodies of the solar system, even including Mars, are the functional equivalent of Antarctica. Okay, we got a we got a station at McMurdo, and we got maybe a dozen stations around the Antarctic coastline. And got this. People are at the South Pole right now. It's amazing. Nobody cares. You've and they're, been there twice. Yeah, and it's not important to human history. If it was completely empty right now, um, human history would be uh, functionally the same. It's interesting. It's it's even useful for understanding this planet better, um, and that's useful. And this and Mars will be useful in that same way of understanding this planet better. But for human history, irrelevant. And what I'm saying is, we co-evolved with this planet. We have no idea if even human gestation and birth. We have no idea if the human brain can survive outside of Earth's magnetic field. Its bacterial load. Half the DNA inside your body is not human DNA, and that kills the space program, the, the star program. The, the, the transference to the stars only works if you take the entire Earth with you. And so uh, I wrote about this in Aurora. What I think we need to do is to recognize that when Silkowski said that, he had no idea how far the stars away were. He had no idea. He had no idea how much of his body was alien DNA inside him crawling around in a vast collaboration that uh, is evolving faster than we are, and therefore we get sick. And he had no you idea were what You're talking about the microbiome. The microbiome and cosmic radiation. When he made that statement, it was a science fiction story, for one thing. I recognize it as such. It's talking about the future and about what humanity should do. So again, it's prescriptive. It's wrong. It happens that when, I mean, right after him, Hubble came out and said, well, you know what? The stars are way farther away than you thought. And the other galaxies, they are really way further away than you thought. So even someone like Kurzweil doesn't usually talk about how we're going to inhabit the entire universe. Crossing from one galaxy to another doubles down on an impossibility. It's impossible squared or cubed or to an exponentially higher power of many magnitudes harder. So, but even the nearest star, and I chose Tau Ceti because it has some planets around it and it's a somewhat like our star, 12 light years away. We can't even do that. We can't do that. So what it does is it reorients us philosophically. You talk about ethics. If this is our one and only home, this planet right here, and we aren't gonna be even living on Mars except in the weird space station way that we live on Antarctica, then, you have to pay better attention to your home. You have to quit fouling your nest, et cetera. And then I would say the same thing to transhumanism. I, to me, um, again, they're over-impressed by science fiction stories uh, and they're not even contemplating. Kevin Kelly is very good on this. What would higher intelligence be? And what are the genes for intelligence? And what is intelligence? And, and as all those concepts begin to crash and you talk about, well, I'm gonna augment humanity, the only one that I've ever liked is longevity. 
like, could we push out the inevitable death of the individual human organism by, could we live twice as long? Wouldn't that be great? Three times as long. Where's the limit on that? Well, um, given the complexity of the human body and of the laws of entropy and physics, there's a limit out there somewhere. We're not making huge progress despite progress everywhere else. Uh, average lifetimes are the longest lifetimes. They're not getting much better and we're not understanding the problem much better either. So that's the only aspect of, of transhumanism that I have any agree with. To make us stronger, well, no, you can't do that because if your muscles are stronger, your bones will break, et cetera. To make us smarter, well, we can't do that because we don't know what smarter is and we don't know which genes have anything to do with it. What we have is science and science might give us some tweaks here and there to make us a little bit healthier. So good health until you die at the age of 150, that's about as transhumanist as I can believe in. And that would be pretty damn good progress. And then like all, everything that I'm saying is, is put a, on a, maybe a 500 year window of possibility of what I think is possible in the next 500 years. If you say to me, well, Stan, what about 50,000 years from now? If humans are still around, who knows? You know, maybe we will have made little um, terrariums, I call them, uh, hollowed out asteroids with a perfectly functioning interior Earth get them out to Tau Ceti and we managed to set up a, a, a terraform space on one of the moons there. You know, in 50,000 years, we might be good enough to do that, but the rest of the galaxy will still be stupendously out of reach. I mean, ridiculously out of reach. People are failing to get it. And they are always saying, well, faster than light travel. We're not gonna do that. They're saying, well, we'll go into cold storage and we'll wake ourselves up frozen. Cold storage is not death. Therefore, you're alive. Therefore, you're aging. Therefore, you're falling apart. So cold storage doesn't work either. There's no way to get to the stars. The get classic. a grip. <laughs> this is what I say. I mean, I'm saying this to my fellow science fiction writers who argue with me on this point, or to the, or to the futurists, or to the Tsiolkovskians, the cosmists. I yeah. say, well, that's a great fantasy. That's like Lord of the Rings. You know, it's a great story space. But in terms of reality, we got to get a we got to get humanity in balance with this biosphere on this planet, or else we're screwed. So um, pay attention to reality. The the cosmists' uh, sort of ideological origins are, of course, very much grounded in sort of Russian Eastern Orthodox uh, kind of Christian Christianity. Uh, mm -hmm. They're kind of inseparable, even. Uh, but the classic transhumanist answer to what you just say is usually Arthur C. Clarke's uh, first law of prediction. Uh, you know, when a distinguished by, but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he's almost certainly right. But when he says that something is impossible, he's probably wrong. <laughs> yeah, and, and Clarke was great. Um, uh, he, he was a quite amazingly good, because he was a science fiction writer, it made him a better futurist. Um, and I know what he means when he's talking about that, because in effect, I can't understand my iPhone. The, um, the, the, the fact that we're talking uh, face to face and you're in Toronto and I'm in Davis, I, uh, if you were to grill me on the details of that, I can't understand it, but it does conform no, to the I'll laws grill of you on something else here and you can finish your thought. Like in 1988, you published a book about the Soviet Union which yeah. foresaw a Soviet Union lasting for decades, if not centuries. And just yeah. a, a year yeah. later, the Soviet Union. A year later, yeah. yeah. 
No, and I like that novel too, but it, the science fiction is not really about predicting the future because human history is extremely unpredictable, but the laws of physics are different. The law between the standard model and um, um, uh, gravity theory, even though they aren't quite reconciled, even though there's vast gaps in our knowledge of the laws of physics, nevertheless, we are biological organisms. And between the rules of physics, uh, as we understand them now, and the, and the way that biology works, I am quite confident in saying that getting to the stars is a functionally impossible for reasons that have to do with laws of physics. We're not in a magic universe. And so even though technology can seem like magic, this is another Clark's law. High enough that. technology seems like magic. That's true. My iPhone seems like magic. But there isn't real magic. So um, we can't go faster than the speed of light. Um, I'm just going to say that. We can't time travel. So this is an interesting test case. Science fiction tells stories of time travel all the time. Those are fantasy stories. They're fantasy stories with a little bit of a, you know, it happened because of my iPhone. It happened because of quantum mechanics. I did that myself in Galileo's dream. Uh, it's just a matter of, of um, you, you hand wave, like I'm hand waving, you know, and that's sort of like um, what Norman Spinrad called the strategic opacity. Right where I would explain it, there's a strategic opacity that keeps the explanation from really working. So faster than light travel, it's a fantasy. Time travel, it's a fantasy. We include them in science fiction, but in a in a way that makes the my genre definition begin to crumble at the edges. And it's very famous. You cannot make a good border between science fiction and fantasy because many common science fiction tropes are, in terms of the laws of physics, completely impossible. So in other words, science fiction, in fact, my students have often kicked my ass on this. I would say fantasies, it's just, a, you know, magic, magic, magic. I don't like fantasy. And they just laugh at me and say, but your science fiction is a fantasy too. It's just a very particular kind of fantasy. So in terms of making bubbles of genres and having literary fights, um, science fiction is bound to lose because it includes a lot of fantasy elements in it and pretends that they conform to the laws of physics when they don't. That can be confusing when you begin to think about the real future. And what I say is what can't happen won't happen. So we won't be going to the stars. And yet it's an interesting story space. Well, Stan, we've been talking for two, two hours and I just want to keep you for another couple of minutes. The last question and then we'll just go to the closing here is like Peter Turchin's, because I think it's relevant here about the history and sort of the, the general direction of humanity and even looking into the future. And this is cleodynamics, Peter Turchin's idea about cleodynamics and about the fact that, you know, there's certain kind of science. Uh, you can look at history in a scientific way, which would then provide you an insight on what's coming down the pipeline. And yeah. supposedly, I read the article myself, Peter Turchin wrote this article in 2010, and he says, and others, other people say, now I personally don't necessarily agree with that qualification, but he says he kind of predicted 2020 and where we are at today, especially with respect to sort of the American context, politically speaking. 
Mm-hmm. What's your take on Peter Turchin's general idea on cleodynamics? How useful is that as a tool? Because he's putting an argument that you can have a scientific tool that would allow you to f- see the big movements of the future. And they're kind of, they rhyme if they don't repeat. And there's scientific rigorousness to them, to that too anyway, that he claims. No, no, that's wrong again. Um, and this is Asimov's psychohistory out of the Foundation Trilogy, yep. where you have a history that is so solid that you can rely on it to predict the actual future. It's also uh, Marx's image of scientific materialism, Marx yep. and Engels saying that the future can be predicted by the trajectory of the past into the present. Historic materialism, is- they call it, I think. Yeah. Exactly. Well, this is wrong, I think. There, I mean, Marx is a great historian, and he, as a science fiction writer, he's as bad as anyone else. And that's true of everybody. The future is uh, multivariant, and there are factors that are going to come into play that can't be predicted. So there is a certain trajectory. I mean, I think you could say in 50 years, there's still going to be the nation state system. Probably so. In 50 years, there's still going to be uh, money. The Soviet Union. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that one. Um, was, we have uh, to be the, careful, though. But wait a second. The, this is a good thing to end on. Science fiction, I've been saying this for a few years now, is like the 3D glasses that you see 3D movies with. Through one lens, you really are trying to see the future. Through the other lens, you are writing about the present using metaphors that are taken out of the future. So the both lenses matter. And in my novel, The Gold Coast, if you read it now, you'll say, well, that's a novel about um, Southern California 1980. Yeah, exactly. It is about Southern California 1980 using futuristic metaphors. And in that context, the Cold War looked eternal. Okay. And I needed uh, the, uh, to talk about the perpetual war that America's been in since World War II. A state of perpetual warfare helps the military-industrial complex, as Eisenhower said. It's basically a, a right-wing taking over of the functions of government, claiming that we're always in the emergency of war, when in fact we're not. So in other words, war is a manufactured excuse for, for political power by a military-industrial right-wing complex. And even if the Soviet Union goes away, way, the Gold Coast still reads extremely accurately because it's about all the small hot wars that happened under the umbrella of the big Cold War. And even when the Soviet Union went away, we still found a whole bunch of small wars we could get into to keep that complex in power, including uh, the longest war in American history, which is the Iraq War or the Afghanistan War, same, the war on terrorism, so to speak. So um, I'm saying that my that science fiction can do certain things. And that futurology or uh, cleodynamics can't do what it claims to do. And when science fiction begins to claim more than it can really do, it can get dangerous. You get Scientology. You get frozen heads. You get a certain kind of transhumanism or cosmism that is basically... Uh, a bogus reading of human history and a misplaced set of priorities on what we should do in the present. So science fiction should be taken as fiction. It should be taken as a story space. And when it talks, when people start talking about, well, I can predict the future because I've got the science that does it. No, you don't. You don't. <laughs> you know, I, I very much feel like like you with respect to Cleodynamics. That's why I say I read the arg- article that he wrote in 2010 
I, I, I think it was very vague and very obscure in the just right amount that you can put a very wide degree of interpretation on what anyway, yeah. but the, the, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I totally, I totally agree. I, I totally agree with you that, that we have to be careful. And that's why I'm so cautious when people call me a futurist and I hate that word me because too. I'm very aware that, you know, my background is in political science and philosophy. And I'm very aware that futurists fail to see the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, most notably experts with decade, you know, mm -hmm. decade mm -hmm. years of, of experience of Soviet studies, as it used to be called, failed to see that happening, let alone in a mostly peaceful way as it did happen, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking 30,000 nuclear warheads, and yet it went very peaceful. It could have been very, very, very bad, mm -hmm. but it wasn't anything like that. Then we had Francis Fukuyama, who, who then predicted the end of history. Well, we know that didn't happen either. So yeah. history didn't stop. We kept going. And actually, that's one of the major points in your book in the end, which I really, really love. And that's towards the end, you say... We'll keep going because we never really come to the end. And, yeah. and that's, that's one of the major morals, uh, I think, that we should keep in mind. And, and, uh, and, and something I, among many things that I took away from this book of yours. So, yeah. Stan, yeah. Let me, uh, I want to make one last point that you brought up there that I think is um, um, extremely important. Um you the, history is nonlinear that chaos theory if you're going to go for a science of history and pretend that you can predict the future what you have to realize is that nonlinearity is so extreme that only chaos theory will do it and what chaos theory tells us is precisely you can't predict some things because there's such a sensitive dependence on initial conditions and su such a, a contingency um, uh, impacts that it can't be done. And, and so you don't have calculus, you have chaos math. And so it, it, even if you did want to put it in scientific terms, you could begin to get to a science that is better at um, um, defining the sheer unpredictability of the future. And so you don't want to be a futurist. You want to be an analyst of the present that talks about the shadow of the future or about trajectory studies or about um, uh, utopian studies, like knowing what we know about history so far, we should do these things. And so really, I, I also avoid the word futurist at all costs, because this is getting into that dangerous zone where you begin to believe your own science fiction. And that's <laughs> when you're in trouble. Yeah, the, the easiest person to trick is your own self, usually, right? So, <laughs> I guess so. I find I'm not that... so good at that. <laughs> yeah, we're all we're all the best at doing precisely that. Stan, let me just ask you, for those of our viewers and listeners who want to f follow you and your work uh, in the future, what's mm. the best place for them to do that? Well, uh, my novels. Just uh, actually, I try to stay offline. Um, there are um, people who work at my publishers. There are uh, some fans of my work who have organized a good websites, but I don't have anything to do with them. And I feel like um, my books are already so long. I've already said my say. Uh, I only like to be a novelist. 
So um, I'm going to continue to produce books. And um, I actually am finishing a nonfiction book about uh, walking in the Sierra Nevada. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you, Cory Doctorow was saying in his online journal kind of thing that you told him that this will be the Ministry for the Future will be your last science fiction novel. Is that correct? No, that's not correct. Um, it's going to be my last big, long novel of any kind. I want to um, see what happens when I begin to compress. And um, I feel like I'm old enough and I've been writing long novels for, a, uh, I mean, really quite long novels for about 30 years. <clears throat> and it's time to invent a, a late style that will be more compressed. But I'm not going to stop writing fiction. I sort of, I must have misspoke myself. A lot of people are under the impression, I must have been saying for a while, this is my last novel, but it, it's the last novel on the contract that I was on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I do think it's my last, I don't think I can do more than the Ministry for the Future. If I tried to write another long novel, I would be repeating myself. I don't like to repeat myself. So in the, in the hunt for something new, I'm going to be trying new things, but I'm never going to give up writing novels because I love them. Uh, and I like being in that mental space of trying to construct a novel. So, so that's yeah. something new. Is that new book on about the Sierra Nevadas? Well, that's nonfiction and kind of a one-off. I needed to write about the Sierra. And that's turning out to be quite a long book. <laughs> so I'm not quite done with long books, but it's nonfiction. Um, and I'm trying to compress it right now. After that, when I come back to fiction, I want to see what happens when you go for propulsion and velocity and compression. And so I have formal desires. But really, as a novelist, you often the form comes first, and then the content fills. You have an idea about a form. At least I do. So this is not unusual for me, but I'm just saying I'm going to make some formal changes, and we'll see what happens. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe once I start writing, it'll... It'll never stop and I'll have another long one, but I kind of hope not. I think the ministry is the end of a certain phase of my existence as a novelist. Wow. And it surely feels to me like a sort of a monumental coming together of all your, I don't know, 30 years of, of writing before that, all sort of culminating in you writing this kind of a master, monumental masterpiece. Uh, so, and and kind of, this long conversation that we had with you today, two hours and 20 minutes or so, what do you want us to take away from you today, Stan? What's the most important thing, the one message that you want to send us away with? Yikes. Um, <clears throat> well, um, do everything you can to support rapid decarbonization of our civilization. I think that's that's the main message. And then secondarily, I would just say, um, keep reading novels, that this is um, <clears throat> a huge growth of humanity, of sympathy for others, of imagining the other. Um, there's something very important in imagining the subject position of the other, of pretending to be an other for a while is enormously <clears throat> Uh, useful and fun in combination. So I, I believe in the novel. That's how we began. That's how I'll end. Um, that's a fantastic end. Let me just push a little bit back, just a tiny little bit here, because you say, do everything that you can to support rapid decarbonization. 
that that's that's absolutely phenomenal but then you gave us this kind of historical justification of sort of eating meat and we know that from a scientific point of view one of the things that we can do uh to embrace this rapid decarbonization is eating vegan going vegan it, why not um, that well okay um it can <clears throat> Can we grow enough plant food to feed eight billion and get them their protein? It's an open question. It's a it's a land use question and an ocean use question. We already know that <clears throat> if people ate beans and chickpeas and lentils, we can easily feed 12, 13, 14 billion people because right now the vast majority of soy and corn is being consumed by cattle. And we well, know that cattle is a lot more intensive yeah, with intensive. respect to energy yeah. and water and all kinds of resources than chickpeas and lentils and beans which are very I, I, high yeah. on protein by the way i i then i totally uh basically i think then we should go that route um that's part of decarbonization i don't eat uh, beef um <clears throat> i'm less rigorous about uh, chicken and fish um <clears throat> so um it, it i I, I would say <clears throat> don't make moral judgments on other people's eating habits. It's too personal and individualized. But what one can do is try to look for um, the least amount of uh, environmental impact, of ecological impact. So I, I see differing arguments about um, chicken and about aquaculture that make me think that there were many faster ways to decarbonize than having to stick to a rigorous vegan diet, which a lot of people um, can't uh, sustain for one reason or another, either um, just for purposes of personal preference or health reasons. So, but to the extent that you can, yeah, uh, eat lower on the food chain. It makes a huge difference. And in, in your book, one of the way that this is represented is by the 2000 watts per year in terms of energy consumption. You talk a lot about that and how your main protagonists are fitting within that kind of uh, originally Swiss uh, idea uh, of 2000 watts per year per citizen uh, as a way of rapid decarbonization. Yeah, it's a good rubric. All those rubrics are good. And, you know, I think you're you're reminding me of something that I usually don't emphasize because of my own habits. Um, but we should definitely be eating lower on the food chain. That is decarbonization. And and if it scales where a lot of individuals do it that way, the the planet will be better off and more wild animals will escape extinction. So um, I think you're right on that. Maybe this is, can be a short novel on one topic. Thank you very much. Yeah, I hope so, because I, I think this is one way that you don't need any external approval. You don't need government uh, legislation. You don't need UN, uh, UN resolution. You don't need subsidies. You can change your behavior today, right now, and you can have a directly measurable impact on that decarbonization that you're talking about tomorrow. And you can do that overnight. Like me and my wife, we went vegan overnight five years ago, and I was a very heavy meat eater. Uh, and you know, 25 pounds lighter five years later, I'm so much better for it. Well, I, I think this is, a good, um, this is a good way for us to finish because I have um, 
a block of firm tofu downstairs that I bought kind of to try to convince my family that it makes a perfectly great replacement for the various meats. So we'll try that and we'll go from there. Fantastic. It's, it's all in the way you cook it, just like a good novel. It's all about how it's written. And your novels, by the way, are some of the really, as Corey says, most beautifully written novels. Another thing I stole from your other novel, by the way, is uh, The Invisible Hand Never Picks Up the, the Check. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love <clears throat> that, that from you. That's the thought of yesterday that I was pondering. It's, it's utter brilliance in, in short form, just like a haiku. I love it. So, Kim Stanley Robinson, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Nicola. It's been wonderful. It's gone really fast, and I hope that um, our, our viewers will feel the same. It's been super interesting. Fantastic. Thank you, Kim. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 